Inside the Lab. I'm Mark Allison alongside my man, the doctor, Justin Quinn. Uh, we decided to join the Celtics in shaking things up this offseason and have made the move to being fully independent with a brand new focus on the podcast. Uh, so we're going to spend a little less time focusing on the day-to-day seas coverage and focus on things that peak our and hopefully your interest. Uh, we'll have a deep dive into something on or an interview of some sort on each new episode, but uh, before we get rolling today, I just want to give a shout out to all our friends over at Celtics Life. Uh, they gave us the opportunity to build an audience through their channels for this podcast. And I know for myself, they gave me an opportunity to cover my favorite team with access to thousands of readers each day. And for that, we'll always be grateful. So cheers to Celtics Life. Uh, cheers to new beginnings. Uh, now, we've been off the airways for a while now. And uh, so we got a little bit to catch up on. Justin, how are the seas looking in this wild, wild offseason of uh, 2019? Very, very different. I mean, to say the least. It's, it's probably, yeah, we, we lost our two biggest players in terms of star power. We saw four rookies come in from the draft, which was, you know, what we were supposedly trying to avoid doing. But now we're looking at even an undrafted guy in a one taco fall fighting his way onto the roster or Javante Green. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe. You're maybe. No, no, maybe. <laughs> I mean, if it was up to me, if it was up to you, we know how it will go. But there are some concerns. So why don't we why don't we talk? Why don't we start right there? Uh, start with the guys who are fighting uh, for a slot and maybe. Let's just go through these guys and just maybe talk about what we think their ceiling and their floor are going to be uh, overall. Like not 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 their career ceiling or floor, but just what we expect to see from them in this upcoming season. Uh, so let's start with Taco Fall. What do you think? Uh, you know, really, it's going it's going to come down to this last fifteenth roster spot going to either Taco Fall, Javante Green, the Dunk Machine. I think I just made up a nickname. Uh, <laughs> Tremont Waters. That was natural. We did. We did not. We did not plan that beforehand. No, not at all. Uh, and then Tremont Waters, or Trey Waters, as he likes to be called, uh, they're all fighting for the fifteenth roster spot. Or you know, they might leave it open for a buyout guy or, or some other thing like that. But we'll just presume that one of these three guys is uh, going to be taking uh, either. Tremont Waters' current two-way contract, he uh, has agreed to a two-way contract. Or maybe what will end up happening is uh, he'll end up getting elevated to the 15th slot, and then one of Javante Green or Taco Fall will end up in the two-way slot that he now occupies. But one of those three may end up. Now, for Taco Fall, what do you think the best-case scenario we're looking at for Taco? So I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'd be shocked if he, we saw the floor with the Celtics this year, right? Um... I, I think it's more likely that he's, you know, obviously he's he's got a little uh, development, to say the least, uh, to go through. But, I mean, seeing how he played in Summer League, now granted we're talking about a whole different level of com- competition, but there's some NBA players in there, right? And, uh, you know, he, he played well. And I think that there's room. I, I think there's certainly an opportunity. I just think the, the size and the athleticism that this guy has – and, and he's only played ball for such a short time. Like there's such a, there, there is definitely some, you know, potential there. And I, I understand that the NBA is a lot different game. If this was the nineties, this guy would be, uh, you know, um, a, a force lottery but, pick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, you know, with the three point shooting and, and, you know, guys pulling the bigs away from there, obviously it's, it's a different league altogether, but best case for taco, I think, I think he probably ends up in one of those two-way slots, right? Like, I think he ends up 
more likely that he would end up like Tremont Waters would end up with that 15th spot and and him with the two way contract. But but either way, I, I think uh, a year in Maine with the Red Claws could could do a lot of good for him. I think so too, and that's basically what I'm looking at as his ceiling too. What do you think his floor is? For me, his floor is. Not not exactly the worst floor in the universe. He could do a Shane Larkin, go overseas, uh, you know, tune up his game, and then come back in a season or three after really learning some fundamentals. He learned basketball pretty late in life, right. so it's not it's not reasonable to expect him to even even to really keep up with with people his age. He is working uh, behind behind the ball, I guess you could say, and he really needs those reps. Uh, right. So for me, the worst case scenario is, is really just, you know, making more money than he's going to make in the G League or even if he makes the 15th roster slot, which is basically a near impossibility. But I mean, that's the worst case scenario for him is making, you know, maybe a, a cool million overseas or, or somewhere in, in the neighborhood uh, playing in Europe or maybe even China. And, you know, based on the based on like the sensation that we've seen, not even just with Celtics fans. I mean, just in Vegas in general, when he was playing there, everybody was going nuts when this guy was coming into the games. Um, you would have to think that at worst, he'll end up overseas because some team will roll the dice and throw some money at him and because yeah. of the, the attention that he'll garner for their team, right? So Exactly. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I, if he doesn't make the Celtics roster, don't feel bad for Taco because he'll probably pick more money overseas and uh, come back to the NBA, I, you know, so in a couple of years or, or whatever, even after a year, he's going to do just fine. As we were talking about Javante Green, this guy jumps out of the gym. We, uh, he kind of exploded onto the scene in the summer league, and I mean, we've seen this with a lot of guys, but he's pretty athletic, Quinn. What do you think because C's position with him is going to be? Uh, I mean, hops are great and all, but he doesn't have the benefit of being seven foot seven, <laughs> so with a ten foot standing reach, you know. So even if he can jump that high, uh, I don't expect him to do better than a two way. He's probably not going to be the guy who gets that last roster spot. And similar floor uh, as far as as far as uh, Taco Fall goes, I do think that there is a decent chance that he will end up in that fifteenth slot, depending on what what Taco wants. You know, if Taco wants money, then he's not getting it with us. So it really depends on, on how these negotiations go. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, even if he made the team or, or you know, he'd be a long way off from, from seeing the court. So, I mean, I, I think a two-way deal maybe, but um, I, I can't see him making that 15th roster spot. But on the other hand, Trey Waters – uh, this guy I really like. Uh, Same. Uh, prototypical backup point guard. Um, I, he made some dynamic plays in, in the uh, summer league. Uh, he's a guy who I, I think and I would love to see um, make that 15th roster spot. If you know, unless unless there's some guy out there that that there we're not you know not on our radar right now that the Celtics could grab. I mean, there, there are a few vets out there. I saw somebody shared a video of Jamal Crawford the other day, and I was like, oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but back to these guys, I mean, like, uh, you know, he, he's, he opened my eyes. He was one of my favorite guys to watch in summer league. 
Yeah, he does seem like he really has those natural uh, floor general instincts. And being a Connecticut native, I have a natural uh, predilection towards him and wanting to see him succeed. <laughs> he didn't go to UConn, so uh, you know he's got that thing against him in my book, but I'll forgive him. Uh, I, I do, I do really like him. I mean, it's really hard to defend when you're under six feet tall. I don't know. I don't know if he will be able to stick in this league as anything more than like I think his real like his best case scenario. Uh, and his career is probably backup point guard. I think this season he might get a couple of games with the parent club if he keeps that two way. If he keeps that two way slot, if he does end up in that that roster slot uh, for the fifteenth and final regular roster slot, I think that the best possible outcome he's going to end up having is playing maybe like a half dozen games, maybe a little bit more than that, just as like if some injuries pop up, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's kind of um, words out of my mouth. I mean, if he's playing, we're you know, certainly we're in trouble. So, I mean, obviously no, no, no offense to Trey Waters, but I really don't want to see him play a ton of games, but um, not this year anyways. But yeah, I, I totally agree that, you know, he more likely he's spending the year in the G League, whether he's in the 15th roster spot or a two-way deal or whatever it is. But um, I, I do like what you see from him. And given that we have our point guard locked up for the next four years, I, I, I you know, you want to have a guy that, uh, is essentially fit to be a backup point guard to be on your roster. You know, uh, Wanamaker's in a similar mold to me, but we'll get to him a little bit later. As for the guys that uh, we drafted, you know, Carson Edwards, Grant Williams, Romeo Langford. what are you thinking uh, of the, uh, what did you like from them in summer league and what do you expect to see? Well, Romeo's pretty good at ping pong. I, I think he's going to, I think, I think people aren't really talking about him a lot right now, but he, you know, coming off of an injury, and uh, obviously he had a bad shooting year, but this kid can ball. And, um, you know, it, they rolled the dice taking him where they took him, but he's got some, um, he's certainly got some upside in the scoring department. I would say that he is looking at about. 10 minutes a game if he actually puts an effort on the defensive end and lots of time in Portland uh, playing with the Red Claws. I mean, most guys end up needing to do that to at least a certain extent their first season, particularly uh, guys who will have the ball in their hands a little bit more. And I do think that there is a, a path for him to see some real playing time with Boston, despite even now all the wings that we still have. But I don't, I don't think anyone should be, you know, I, I, I think he and everyone should have some pretty low expectations uh, about what we're going to see from him. And it's really going to be more about instilling good habits and good so, form. And my, my, the reason why I think now, I, I think they, you know, like taking him where they took him, uh, they obviously have some projections of what he could become and, and what he's capable of. And I, and I do think you're right that he's probably a little ways off from that, uh, especially coming back from uh, thumb injury like that. And, you know, getting back into your shooting form and everything. Um, but Carson Edwards, this guy is a walking bucket. Um, I mean, he opened up a lot of eyes in, first of all, in the NCAA tournament, but I was kind of surprised that he went, they were able to nab him where they did in the second round. I understand there's a size thing, but he, this guy, he looks like he's ready to play right now. He is. He absolutely is. He may not be able to play, you know, against most first units, and he may struggle against some of the league's better second units, but I mean... 
his 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 reach is 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 longer than his height. He's jacked as hell. Uh, he can guard people, particularly on like second unit size guards. He'll be okay. And what he adds in terms of offense, what he will do to second units that are trying to defend him, uh, particularly without most of the league really being fully aware of what they're going to be facing. In the same kind of way that Jason Tatum surprised people uh, more than he should have. Um, I think that it's a real possibility for him. Now, there is the possibility uh, of him, you know, hitting that that uh, rookie slump that always seems to happen around the 40th game or so of the season when they are, you know, well beyond anything they've ever played before in terms of like high school or college. Uh, so I do think that there is a chance that he may miss that. I mean, he's not walking in all skin and bones. No, uh, no offense, uh, Mr. Tatum, uh, but when when Tatum showed up, he was. You know, he was still a kid, really. He did not have a man's body yet. And, you know, that takes a lot of conditioning that he hadn't put in the work for. And I think Carson might already have that. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think I think even more so than Langford, I think he'll probably be a bigger factor this year. Um, I just think he's a good match to play with guys, to play with the, with the set we have. I mean, essentially, we have Kemba as our point guard and then probably Marcus Smart with the second unit. We don't really know how that's going to work out. But even if he's not, he'll probably be in the game with the second unit, handling the ball, along with Gordon Hayward probably handling the ball a lot. And Edwards is a perfect guy to come off the screens um, and kind of play like, like IT played, you know, and then not to do that just because of the size exactly. factor. But in the, the way that they play the game, um, you know, coming off screens and this guy attacks the buckets. He can shoot. Um you know, off a screen, uh, he's got range, you know, he's got Seth Curry range, um, Steph Curry range, I'm sorry. Frightening range. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, and I, don't, I don't mean to admit that he's like on his level, but he's got that range and, and he's fearless shooting. So I, I think there's a role for him, you know, and he could usurp Wanamaker for that, you know, backup point guard that's like, you know, there. I, I could see him totally overtaking him and, and stealing any minutes that he'd be getting. I don't disagree. Now, what do you think about Grant Williams? I, 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 I can see Williams actually carving out, you know, 15 to 20 minutes a game by the end of the season, if not sooner. Uh, but I could also see him uh, kind of just getting swallowed up in the rotations, particularly if Gordon Hayward has a really good start to the season. And he might end up uh, not getting the kind of minutes that I think a lot of us would love to see based on his attitude and personality. But you know, I think there's a real possibility that he may only end up playing, you know, five, maybe at most 10 minutes a game, depending on the steps forward. A lot of the roster that underperformed last season ends up performing. Yeah, and I think a big, huge, one of the biggest factors with him is going to be Semi Ojale. And how, I and mean, we know Stevens likes Ojale. If Semi's playing more than what, you know, what we've seen, if he takes a step forward, um, you know, he could usurp a lot of minutes there. But, it, you know, Grant Williams looks like he has the potential to be pretty dynamic and being in this similar size and, they, you know, he might be able to steal some minutes from Semi depending on how well he's playing. I think that's going to be the biggest factor to see how much we're going to see of him. Absolutely. Now, we have another rookie. Uh, I don't I don't know what to think about him because I've seen about maybe 10 minutes of highlights. <laughs> so, uh, for me, this guy, Vincent Poirier, uh, I hope I'm saying his name right. I'm probably not. Apologies if I'm not. Uh, I think it's important to remember that he is going to be adjusting to an entirely new way of playing basketball coming over from the Euro League. Uh, and that 
could end up being too much of a challenge. We could see something similar to uh, how Tice came over. Their game is very different, don't get me wrong. Uh, but we could see something to how t- when Tice came over, like he he had some flashy moments here and there, but he was kind of a non-factor the first season he was with the Celtics. He was really just learning how to play. And then he had until a, the a end, much bigger second season. season. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that's exactly what I think is probably the worst case scenario. I mean, the guy is huge. He can he can help, you know, stop the Andre Drummonds and LaMarcus Aldridge's of the league. I don't know how effective he's going to be against the Joel Embiid's and other guys that kind of have a more well-rounded game. Uh, so we'll see uh, just how useful he is. But I mean, I, there's also a possibility uh, based on the athleticism and movement that I've seen from him that he could be uh, a really big surprise for people. It's really hard for me to say. So what are you, what are you, what are you taking away from him? From I think you're seen? probably right. We should probably temper expectations for the first year. It's definitely going to be an adjustment. Um, but at the same time, he's freakish athlete, you know, that size and I mean, he led the EuroLeague in rebounding last year. So this guy has a nose for rebounds, which is something the Celtics fans would love to hear. But I honestly think that, uh, you know, the guy at center, and I know we have Inez Cantor coming in, and I think he's going to be a great addition. But I really think that this year, time, our, our man Robert Williams, Time Lord, is going to be usur- taking a lot of time at the center time. position. I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised if he's in the mix to be the starter by the end of the year. He's going to be a monster. And um, I, I really think he's the one that's going to take a huge step forward this year in terms of uh, the Celtics and surprise a lot of people. So let's turn to him then. Uh, now, the thing that really caught my attention in Summer League more than anything else was not something I expected to see from him at all, maybe ever. And that is passing. If mm-hmm. he can keep developing that, even if his offense isn't so hot away from the basket, and I mean like anywhere away from the basket. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, like if you find yourself, you know, at the elbow and you don't have a clear path to the basket, see what you can do with that passing, man. I think that is something that could really unlock him and turn him into a borderline starter, solid rotation guy if – he can keep, you know, basic fundamentals in order, defensive rotations that he had trouble with last season. He looks better. I, th- I still think he's going to have some issues, particularly with this new team. He's going to have to learn some new things because now they're going to be going back to the kind of sets we ran with IT on the roster a bit more, less ISO. So more learning for him. So again, this could be similar to last season, at least for the first half. But I think that you're right. He will at least be on the court for NBA games more than he was last season. I don't think those of you who presume he will be spending lots of time in the G League are right. I think that he will earn some time, uh, at least yeah, early. And he may not keep it. Obviously, going to depend on if he performs. But I really think that there's a better chance that he's a huge factor in the in the roster this year, more so than some of the other guys coming in, like like Poirier. You know, I think he's he's got a he's got a better opportunity at least in front of him to seize um, a lot of the minutes, uh, a lot of the big minutes anyways. Um, Because obviously with Al going, we've got a gaping hole there. You know, there's going to be a lot up for grabs there. I mean, it seems like the Celtics are pretty high on Inez Cantor, and we'll get to him in a sec. But I I think there's plenty of um, time to to be stolen from some of these guys. I, and I mentioned Wanamaker earlier. Um, I think he's probably going to be in the similar role that he was last year. I mean, maybe there's a little more opportunity for him that, I mean, obviously with, with Kemba coming in and basically taking the minutes that Kyrie had, uh, Terry Rogier leaving, 
opens that is where it opens up some time for some of these other guys to seize uh you know backup point guard minutes so Wanamaker there's there's certainly a chance that he'll he'll play he'll probably play more than he did last year but at the same time um but not much yeah right? I, I would I would say and I would rather see some of the younger guys get an opportunity than Wanamaker I mean we kind of know what he is so um you know he's a good backup point guard you know, given that this is a new fresh start, and it's obviously going to depend on how well the team is playing too, but I'd rather see some of the younger guys get a little more opportunity than see more of him. To to jump up to our third-year guys, uh, you mentioned him earlier. Now, Shemi, I think this is a critical year for Shemi. I think he either needs to take some step forward, hitting those threes more consistently, uh, or, you know, really becoming the Giannis stopper, just blossoming into some kind of defensive... Uh, you know, specialist really in that situation. If he doesn't do one of those two things, uh, I, I see him being shipped off to be a deep rotation player someplace else. What do you think? Absolutely. And I, I think that's what I was talking about with Grant Williams. I think there's an opportunity for him to usurp Ojale. Uh, but, I mean, I, I I like the things that Ojale can do. He can shoot threes. He hasn't shooting a great percentage in his career, but he, he definitely the cap- he has the capabilities to do it. Um, but really, that's been the uh, limit to his offensive game, really. Uh, you know, kind of a Bruce Bowen type uh, defense. I'm not comparing him to Bruce Bowen in any way, but in terms of his game, shoot from the outside, play elite defense. Um, now, he hasn't really played elite defense. We've seen him at times play elite defense, but like you said, um, if he could turn that into a role of 3 and D guy and and really lock down as like effective at both of those things, uh, I think... You know, he, he could certainly play a lot, but they may, the, the Celtics may be, you know, when we get into training camp, we're going to find out, you know, seeing these guys play against each other and, and, and how far behind someone like Grant Williams is from an Ojale. Now, another third-year guy, uh, Tice, you know, he was playing uh, off of a meniscus tear uh, and didn't really seem anywhere near as intense or explosive. And... You know, meniscus repair has, has come a long way. You know, it used to be something that really hurt people's athleticism after it happened. But, I mean, I see a lot of guys who have had multiple meniscus surgeries and have come back to look very, very good, almost as if it hadn't happened. So, you know, I, I don't know enough about meniscus tears in particular to really be able to say what kind of a season to expect from him. But I like to think that he should at least be more confident, if not any, you know, more structurally sound. So I could see him uh, getting a lot of run when we we, we really want to have uh, like a uh, he's really the only guy that we can have for a pick and pop kind of an offense. So like for teams that have a lot of trouble struggling with that, I could see him being deployed. But I mean, he's not going to be an Al Horford for us. So I I, I don't really see him like I, I think that 15 minutes a game is probably his ceiling with us for this season. Uh, and if he if he plays like he played last season, it sounds weird to say this based on what we have for a front court. But if other members of the front court are more successful than some think, I could see him, you know, almost going to a third string role. I think I think you're right on with that because I think that I think Tice is going to get an, um you know, he's going to he's going to be playing at least in the beginning of the season, right? As a as they ease some of these younger guys into their roles and whatnot, and and I think he's going to have an opportunity to, to keep that spot and play. Um, and you know, it, but like you said, if, if, if we don't see the explosiveness that we seen saw, uh, earlier, um, you know, last year he was kind of, it, it did just seem not, I don't want to say it, it just didn't seem quite right. So, and obviously coming off a meniscus tear, 
Um, I, I think that's, uh, especially being a big guy too, I, I imagine that makes it more difficult to come back from with the extra weight on there and whatnot. He does a lot of the things that Al could do in terms of being a good passer, rebounder, good defender. And, you know, obviously it's no Al Horford, but because he does a lot of those things, maybe Stevens will want to utilize him because he's, you know, got that veteran presence in there. But I, I think it's really going to depend. I think we'll find out pretty soon in the first I think we'd know by like mid-December whether he's going to be a factor later in the year or not, and whether these uh, younger guys are going to take some of that those minutes. But he's a great depth piece either way. So even if he's not, um, he's definitely a good guy to have on there. Uh, even though he's been in the league for a short time, I, I could kind of consider him a veteran, being here for two years and you know understanding Brad's system. Anyways, Jason Tatum going into his third year, I think people expect a lot. Um, you know, what do you think we're going to see? How much? How much? improvement do you think we're going to see from year two to three well i mean he was famously claiming that he was going to be an all-star and he was going to score 20 points a game while dragging boston uh to the nba finals uh, maybe not dragging that's not, not quite the right way to characterize that but basically implying he was going to be a large part of the reason why they would make the nba finals uh, I think the last part is a bit of a stretch i don't i don't think it's impossible particularly if we make a move or two at the deadline uh but uh, I don't think it's that difficult if he has really been working with uh, Drew Hanlon on you know, eliminating a lot of those two-point attempts and upping his uh, confidence and three-point attempt rate, uh, as well as you know really attacking the basket more than he did last season. Those two things combined could easily push him up to the range of 20 points per game. Uh, but what I'm really expecting to see from him uh, is being more comfortable uh, with his offense all around, whether it is taking threes or attacking the cup. That's, I, I do expect him to take a step forward, just not a huge one like some people are hoping for. I think what's important is not the number of points that he scores, but the efficiency in which he does it. And, I mean, you can really say that for everybody, but in his case, uh, especially like you said, a lot of ISO ball last year on the Celtics, a lot of turnaround jump shots. Either, it, yeah, now great. If he's scoring 26 a game next year, perfect but we want to see an efficient 26 points a game right so if he's scoring 18 or 19 points a game but he's doing it and he's shooting good percentages he's shooting close to 40 percent from three that would be huge and that would be i mean with all these other guys that we have that can score and we're going to get into some of these guys right now because the guys that are going to put the you know put the points on the board are the veteran guys that are here and you know, his, he's stepping into his third year. He's turning into a veteran between this year and the next year. And, um, you know, you, you want to see him make the right decisions rather throwing up shots just to do it. Um, especially when there's guys to other guys that, you know, are going to need some opportunities too. They got Jalen Brown, another guy who's, you know, we expect to see more from this year. Every year we've expected to see more. He's developed, and you know we don't really quite know what his ceiling yet is either, Quinn. So what what are you thinking for Jalen Brown next year? Yeah, for me, I think with Jalen, people need to understand that he was more than just about anybody, maybe excepting Terry Rozier, was asked to do things that someone with his skill set and career arc would never be asked to do otherwise. I'm talking about uh, basically being relegated to the bench after – Almost, you know, almost at least as much as uh, Jason Tatum helping to drag a team to the precipice of the NBA finals. Uh, That is 
not an easy thing for someone who knows they are talented uh, to do and then still be able to contribute positively to a team. We saw how Terry Rozier, who is, in my opinion, uh, pretty talented, not anywhere near as talented as Jalen, but still pretty talented. We could saw we saw how much, you know, a bad attitude can cause you to just flame out and ruin your own future. We didn't see that from Jalen. We saw we saw a little bit of difficulty early on, but he was playing with a hand injury and all of these things taken into account. I'm expecting a fairly large step forward. I think that it will be a much easier game for him if he can actually handle the ball, at least for short periods of time, without being like super robotic, uh, a constant danger of being stripped anytime he actually does try to get near the basket with it. Um, I think that that plus a little bit better, uh, you know, floor vision uh, as to what to do with with the, the, the Rock once he is in a situation where it's clear he's not going to be able to score. Uh, I think that that could make him a very good player that will actually be worth some of the fairly large offers, I think, that will come his way. I don't think he's going to get a max. I don't think anyone is going to throw a max at Jalen. We don't quite know what he is yet. Um, I don't know if we're going to find that out this year. Um, there could be a ways to go. So, I mean, I don't I don't know the max deal. I don't know. There may be some team would roll the dice on that. I, I think, obviously, this year is going to de- depend a lot on that. But... I expect to see an improvement from him and, uh, you know, taking becoming more of a leader on the team. He's been here for, for a while now. Um, he's one of the, he's, he's, he's got the brains. So he's a guy you want telling guys, tell, mentoring these younger guys, because, you know, being a high draft pick, I mean, he, he can kind of, you know, help these guys temper some expectations and, and, and fit into roles and, and try to help the team win. Um, another guy who's probably the de facto leader of the team now, uh, Marcus Smart. He's been around the longest. Um, I think we've probably seen – we probably have – this is Marcus Smart. This is what he is. I mean, I don't, he's not he's, – he's only 24, but, I mean, he improved his three-point shooting last year to a very respectable 36%, 36.5%. And his elite defense is obviously – we don't even have to mention that. I mean, anybody in the league knows – anybody that watches. I mean, we're probably looking at the same from him. We're looking at probably 30 minutes a game. 10 points and and filling up the stat sheet in other ways and all his game-winning plays um i, I think we, this is this is the marcus smart and I mean, if he gets a little more efficient great but we're, we're probably at peak marcus smart right now right i would think so i can't really think of too much more that he can really do to improve his game other than getting slightly more efficient yeah and i, I think like even like he's not going to he's never going to be like a 20 point a game scorer but for a guy to be able to score 10 points a game consistently and and has big nights from here and there where he drops 20 you never have to run a play for the guy you know it's he's he just he plugs away i mean he takes a lot of threes but hey last year he made a good amount of them so you know more than half of his shots come from back there set three pointers and that's if that's what it is he's comfortable in that role it doesn't matter if he starts it doesn't matter if he comes off the bench he's going to play like 30 minutes a game he's going to be in there in crunch time um and you know he a lot of times he comes through with the big shots when when it counts and i think that's what we have going forward and i think like you said his floor um is probably right about where he is right now so he maybe he gets a little bit better but i can't see him getting much worse either so you know we've marcus smart is what he is now the new guys uh, or at least two of the new guys, before we get to our man Gordon. Inez Cantor, 
Uh, Justin, I, th- I think there's a little untapped potential with Cantor. He's a big guy. He's he's very, very good offensively around the bucket. He can rebound. The biggest gripes have been his play on the defensive end, right? Well, he has defended at league average-ish levels in seasons when he was on teams that actually had a chance at contending. Uh, you know, last season with the Knicks, that was not the case. But with Portland, he was pretty damn good. So I do think that, you know, as long as the team is playing well and looking good, then we will probably see some defensive buy-in from Cantor. But for me, the more intriguing possibility is the fact that he is evidently being given the green light to shoot. And when I say shoot, I mean from deep. And, you know, he's had some mixed success. Uh, He's, you know, at some Jared Sullinger levels of three-point shooting, uh, high 20s, low 30s. Uh, But it's enough where if he is allowed to do it regularly, that he will at least be able to get a little bit of gravity, I think. Now, if he could actually become successful at it, finds his spots, knows his sets, and when it's good for him, then, you know, he could really be an interesting uh, option for the Celtics. Uh, But more realistically, I I think that probably uh, a three every three or four games and, you know, double-double-ish territory is even still probably optimistic. I think that really what we're going to be getting out of him is close to double-digit points or double-digit rebounds, but not both per game. I think that sounds pretty reasonable. Now, for the for the uh, for the big man, and when I say big man, I mean the the man that got paid, uh, Kemba Walker, jumping into Kyrie's position as our leading scorer, team leader in that regard. What do you expect to see from Kemba? Isaiah Thomas, but a better better defending version of him uh, with a very very similar game. Apart from that, I mean, there's been a lot of comparisons to Kemba and Kyrie because of the the timeline. Realistically, I, I don't see any better way to use him than the same kind of sets that we ran for Isaiah Thomas. Uh, I I think that he will be immediately a better defender. He's a much better defender than he gets credit for. And while he is also a little light in the shoes in terms of stature. Uh, He's taller, and he is uncategorically a better defender uh, in in just about any scenario where we're going to find him. He's still going to be one of the weak spots in terms of defense, but as we have seen before, there are ways to hide that. There are players we can hide him with. I don't see him sharing the court much with Cantor, even if Cantor is, even if they are both above what they are usually in terms of how they played in recent years. But I do think that we can expect some pretty good offensive things from Kemba Walker. And I think that there is a real possibility for people's expectations to be not, you know, criminally low for this team. But I don't think crossing the 51 threshold, we can talk about that more in a minute, uh, is out of the question with a player like Kemba surrounded by the talent that we have on the roster. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that um, Brad Stevens, there's, there's certainly an opportunity here to, we might unlock, the, the best of Kemba Walker, as we've seen Stevens do with other players, a la Isaiah Thomas, and just the way he's going to fit into his system. And as me and Cam talked about on our last podcast, this is the best team that Kemba's ever played with. By far. So people, anybody getting down on his efficiency, you know, you can pick the, doing comps to Kyrie Irving and, he, and he's, you know, his shooting percentages are a little less. But 
this is, you know, that's a guy that's double teamed all the time. And that's, you know, not going to be able to be the case so much with this Celtics team, especially if Brown and Tatum take some steps forward. And another guy we got to talk about, Gordon Hayward. I, I mean, if we get the Gordon Hayward back that the Celtics signed, um, you know, fully recovered from that injury and back, you know, Utah Jazz um, primetime Gordon Hayward, things are certainly going to open up for Kemba Walker. Yeah, we'll still have some problems in terms of how we are going to deal with certain teams in the league, particularly with with the very, very mobile big men that can shoot. We're going to have problems with that. But just diving right into Hayward, I think that there is a very good chance that the Hayward we saw at the end of last season will be the Hayward we get at the start of this season, and that might be the only Hayward we ever have. But even if that's the case, that's a pretty good player. Maybe he's a little overpaid based on, uh, you know, the current market value of players playing with like a roughly 15 per uh, that he has at the end of last season. I, I don't think that I don't think that it's going to be a problem for him to play at that level with the Celtics for the rest of his. Uh, he's, he's only got one season after this. Uh, should he opt in? I'm not too worried as long as we see you know a fairly consistent version of what we saw at the end of last season from him. I think we'll have a very good season, and I think that we'll be right in the range of that that 51 threshold. But there is the possibility that he does return to form as you suggested, and in that kind of a situation, uh, I think that we might be a very big surprise for people. That is the scenario I think that in getting somebody, either having somebody in Poirier, for example, or finding somebody on the buyout market or whatever. How are you feeling about this team? Yeah, so I think I think your fifty wins um, is probably right about where we should temper our expectations. Uh, I would I'd take the over on that, maybe slightly over fifty. And then, obviously, I think, you know, there's a chance for some, you know, to be significantly better than that if, if some things work in the ways that we were just talking about. Um, I think the Eastern Conference is, maybe that's what we should talk about now because I, the, the Eastern Conference teams, obviously, Toronto took a huge hit. Uh, they're certainly not going to be the number one team in the Eastern Conference this year. Now, they, they may still be a playoff team and because they still have some other pieces and some young guys that are really good. Sure. We've got Milwaukee, Philly for the de facto number one team. Obviously, Philly, they're changing things up a little bit. They lost Jimmy Butler, but they got Al Horford. So, you know, now their front court is pretty ridiculous. But they also lost their um, end of game spot up, you know, um, their guy that can ISO and get you a bucket at the end of the game. You know, as much as I love Al Horford, I don't know that that was the best thing that could have happened for them. I, getting Al is great, but losing Jimmy Butler and getting Al... Not so great um, because now they don't really have that guy. I've seen some videos of Ben Simmons shooting some three pointers, and we've seen that before. That doesn't uh, <laughs> that doesn't move the needle for me at all. If it works, if it works, it'll be great. Yeah, but the problem is, is it going to work? I mean, do you really? I guess they don't really have another choice. Yeah, I mean, they went and got the best player when they lost Butler, right? So I mean, you know, they did what they did. They, they, I mean, and essentially they got Embiid's kryptonite in Al Horford, which is not a small issue. I, I don't see who they're going to have uh, that is the closer. It's not going to be Al. That's just not who Al is. He's going to make them much better, particularly by not defending a bead, as you mentioned. I'm feeling kind of similarly about Milwaukee. They didn't really add anybody noteworthy and lost Brogdon. So now they're depending on, on Eric Bledsoe. And... You know, in either of these situations, like I do think there's a fairly compelling case for either to be the team that ends up in the NBA Finals coming from the East. But 
I don't really think that either of them are necessarily better. They might be as good, but I don't know. You know, there's still things they can do at the deadline. Uh, there's still things they can do on the buyout market. For now, at least, I am not seeing it. Uh, what ends up happening with another team which could, you know, compete with us or and say maybe Indiana uh, for somewhere on third, fourth seed, Toronto could conceivably uh, be good enough to stick around. But if they don't, then they have guys like Ibaka and uh, Mark Gasol that could really help a lot of teams and, you know, maybe Boston on a minimum. I mean, I won't say that I'm real crazy about Mark Gasol's uh, ability or, you know, for that matter, Abaka's ability to guard Joel Embiid, but they are probably as good or better than anyone we have on our roster right now at doing that. So I don't know. What do you think? I think that Philly, uh, I think they're going to be in trouble. And I don't mean, I, I think they'll probably have a great season and win a lot of games. But I mean, when it gets to the playoffs and the game changes a little bit, I think they're going to have a lot of problems, like you said, without having a guy that's a closer. Now, I think Milwaukee's in a better situation because they have both Anatokounmpo and Middleton. Middleton can serve as your closer. I mean, he can hit some big shots at the end of the game if you need him to. So I think they're in a better position in that regard. And I, I would say that they're probably the de facto number one team in the Eastern Conference right now. But I do think more than, more than both of those teams, the Celtics have more upside than either one of those teams. Because there's a lot of unknowns. And obviously, I'm not saying that we're going to be better than either one of those teams. But I'm saying there's potential for that. And that maybe, you know, maybe we crash and burn and we don't have a great season. And we just middle out and we end up the fourth or fifth seed. And, you know, things look a lot similar to last year. But I find that hard to believe. And I think that there's, based on, you know, if Gordon Hayward returns close to form. If Kemba Walker, if we see the best Kemba Walker we've seen right in this new system if Tatum or Brown or both of them take a huge step forward if one of those big guys is good I mean it's a lot of ifs but if they're they're not like there's a lot of ifs but they're not like far-fetched I mean probably the most far-fetched thing of that is is Hayward returning to form it's you know certainly plausible I mean we saw what happened with Paul George and he's playing the best basketball he's ever played and he said it took him two years to get back to that you know I'm not going to throw this guy out yet I think I think we have the most upside of those teams, but at the same time, a lot, the most question mark, if that makes any sense. It totally makes sense. Really, I think the only way for this team to actually be a real contender is to make a significant upgrade in the front court. But we have guys like Tice and Shemi and, you know, some of the younger guys, uh, Wanamaker. There's ways to aggregate salary on this team that we couldn't have last season. Like we were basically doing the AD deal, Anthony Davis deal or nothing. You know, because that's that's the way they, they structured the roster and contracts to have the tools to trade for that. And more likely we would be looking at a, a younger uh, or, you know, more situational uh, big that would be more useful against those kinds of teams that we are. Just- Don't you think now, granted, we haven't had great success adding guys midseason, but it's a lot easier to just find yourself a useful big guy rather than have to go find like a closer like Philly. Oh, by far. Are they gonna, by who far. are they going to bring in? Those are guys that are max level players that we're talking about, you know, and they don't have one um, that can close out a game for them. So I, I think we're in a better situation to improve our team midseason too, at least at least in Philly, maybe not so much with Milwaukee because they, they really have their their closer and their, their, their superstar in place. And, and they, they could, they could, they would probably benefit from stealing some of those Toronto players. So I think we, you know, the upsides there, 
we'll see how it shakes out. We're not, obviously this is, we're not going to have any answers to this till mid, you know, at least we get into like December and kind of understand what we're working with. Um, I think, I think now is a perfect time to uh, segue into, you know, we've had this player movement this year, one of the wildest off seasons in recent memory, maybe of all time, just players going all over the place, uh, players kind of taking control of free agency and, and where they want to go and forcing trades. And uh, whether that's good or not for the league, we're going to take a dive into the lab with the doctor himself, Justin Quinn. The real question here is, is this good for basketball? And, you know, you read a lot of articles, you hear a lot of analysts talking about just how hard it's going to be to build a team. At the same time, we saw a dynasty that circumstance kind of birthed into existence through random chance finally dethroned by this kind of player movement. While at the same time, we have seen uh, increasing increasing levels of international growth, you know, through Toronto being the first team to win a championship outside of the United States, uh, the, the rise of international players, it's really not clear uh, if the epidemic or bonanza, however you're looking at it, of player movement is affecting the league in a way that is good or bad. Now, it looks to me, based on what I am seeing, that this is a good thing. We have much higher degrees of engagement from fans than in recent years. Uh, we seem to be growing the sport faster than any other American sport uh, around the world. You know, people are really consuming the sport um, in ways that have, you know, little to do with the outcome of the sport, which, you know, you may not like that as a purist for the game itself, but as a media venture, it is a freaking goldmine. What do you think about all this? It's one thing when guys want to go wherever they want free agency and build these super teams and do that. Um, it's a kind of another thing when guys like Anthony Davis, who are, I want to be traded, I want to be traded here, and not you know and forcing the hand of teams and and not only that they want to be traded he, he didn't want to be traded because he was like unhappy well maybe he was unhappy with the fact that his team was never competing or, mm -hmm. or whatever but you know he wanted to go to la so send me to la and i mean and it, and it ultimately they caved and and he got exactly what he wanted and he sat out almost half a season with his team because his team didn't want him to get hurt uh so he didn't lose his value and, it, you know, when you got guys, these guys signed these big money contracts with these teams. This guy was paying, playing for max money, and he didn't play half the season because the team didn't want to lose the value of the player because if he got hurt, you know, and I mean, that's, that, that is unfortunate. And there, there should be a little bit of pride that goes along with this team pays me a lot of money. I should be out there playing my best to win games for this team. And it, it's, all, it's become, well, I'm not happy with this situation. I'd rather be in this situation and let me... Let me let me make sure that everybody knows that this is where I'm going to go and blah blah blah. And I mean it, that hurts, especially with the small market teams. And I mean, look, look, I mean, look at the circus that we had to deal with last year and the unknown. And it, and obviously Kyrie doesn't he didn't know anybody anything. He left in free agency. He didn't say anything. So it's kind of a different situation. But but what Davis? But did, in a lot of ways, it's not though. It's not though in a lot of ways because the way the league is now. And this is my position. You don't have to agree, obviously. But the way the league is now, it is clinging to a past that has been mostly washed away by the sands of time to be all poetic. But, I mean, it's really the truth. We have seen the league change to increasingly facilitate player movement. 
And as it's done this, it's grown you know, exponentially in popularity. The more it allows for player movement, the more people seem to be engaged, the more the league seems to grow. Once upon a time, there was no CBA. There was no collective bargaining agreement that governed how the league worked. There was there were rules, but the, the players, for example, had basically no say whatsoever. They've oftentimes found themselves working for free uh, in exhibition games, countless exhibition games before the season even started so the owners could rake in the cash. They weren't allowed to have any of it because they were contractually bound to perform, and they could never change teams. Free agency did not exist until fairly recently in terms of the history of the NBA. You know, through, you know, Kuz and Tommy Heinsohn and, you know, a lot of other famous players, uh, the the Players Association formed in 1970, and they started forging collective bargaining agreements because of that. Uh, they got rid of things like the option clause that bound players to teams basically for their entire career. Uh, they added revenue sharing so players will make more money. Uh, they shortened the draft, uh, added a cap. The cap began to grow, increasing the amount of money they were able to make through TV deals that, in part, were attracted to the drama of these players changing teams and being traded. And eventually, what we ended up seeing were increasing movements. Happened little by little. We don't need to go over all of it. But contracts have been getting shorter. Uh, and player movement has been facilitated by rule changes. And what we are seeing now, I argue, is a situation where rules that are in place to prevent player movement are actually hurting teams in ways that they could be helping them. I mean, now we can see a team like the Toronto Raptors, who looked like they were on the brink of a rebuild uh, more than one season in a row, just totally pivot to become a championship team. For me, what I think needs to happen is some kind of change that makes this player movement legal, respectable to the consumer, as well as the people who are building the teams. And you know, really just in line with what is working for the league in terms of gaining attention and engaging audiences. What do you think? The player movement is certainly, it's spiked up interest. And I think a lot of that has to do with social media and, and, and that being around and, and the, the mystery over what's going on. And it's like the, the season stretches into the postseason now, right? Because there's all this player movement and what's going to happen. And, and I think the allure of that is great for the game. And I just think that the guys can handle the way things go down a little bit better. Like we were just, we were talking about Kyrie before. And, you know, for him, the reason why the Celtics fans went crazy about Kyrie, whether he's going to stay, whether he's going to go, is, and the reason why the media circus became a thing was because he said he was staying, made that silly commercial with about his number getting retired. When then, when somebody asked him whether he was going to stay, all of a sudden his attitude was totally changed. And that is what caused the circus that happened here, right? And that's why the fans went nuts. Now, if he had kept his mouth shut, a la Kyrie Irving, I mean, um, Ka Kawhi Leonard, I'm sorry, he was never going to stay in Toronto. They won the title, and he's not staying there. He never had any intention of staying there. But you know what? He, he put on a good face. He said, we'll see what happens. We're going to win a title this year, blah, 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 blah. I played out the year. He won them a title, first of all. Now, I'm, I'm sure... He wouldn't have as much fanfare leaving from Toronto had they not actually won. But even getting them to the dance and whatnot, um, and he played hard all year long for them, right? And and he didn't talk about his offseason. And Kyrie didn't want to talk about his, but it kept coming up because he talked about it in the first place. 
he the way he handled it was great, and I, and I don't really want to get into his whole San Antonio situation. Obviously, there's some some bad. There were some mixed emotions on both sides from that, and where that went wrong, I don't know. I don't know how that happened, but it just seems to me like he always wanted to be in LA. He was going there. No one makes a big deal out of him going there now because it's like. You know, he didn't wear that on his sleeve all year. He worried about winning games for the Toronto Raptors, and it got him a title. Yeah, and I think there's an easy solution for this. We all know that coaches will just say, decline to comment anytime they're asked about players on another team. All you need to do is make discussion of players in the media discussing changing teams illegal. Let them tamper behind the scenes all they want and talk to each other. We could talk about when... But just make it make any of this business of team building discussion is just illegal in public. You can comment on games all you want. But if they want to talk about the future, they're just going to have to deal with what the sports writers and the team is willing to say through legal channels. Maybe what we should do is take a quick look at how the system currently works. I'm just gonna give you a very quick top-level rundown. You know, with free agencies, we have restricted and unrestricted. Obviously, unrestricted free agencies, they can either, at the end of a contract, if they are not designated a restricted free agent, they can sign with anyone they want to. If they can opt out, they can do the same sort of a thing. They get paid based on number of years of experience. Zero to six gets you 25% of the cap. Six to nine gets you 30% of the cap. And 10 plus gets you 35% of the cap with the exception of the designated players. We'll get to that in a second. They can be paid less than that, but this is the maximum that they can earn based on their years of experience. Uh, the offers need to be two to four years uh, instead of the five years you can get as an unrestricted free agent. And that's mostly just so that way you don't have to worry about other teams being able to snipe your players with an equivalent offer. You can always offer them more years and money. We have seen that that is less important now, and maybe it should be even less important. Maybe maybe they should be shorter contracts by default. You cannot make these signings during the NBA regular season or until the NBA's moratorium. And during the moratorium, you can agree to deals between June 30th and July 5th right now. It's changed over time, but that's the way it's running so far. Famously, DeAndre Jordan is a guy who, you know, reneged on his deal uh, during that period in the same kind of way that Marcus Morris did, speaking of the San Antonio Spurs, ending up joining the Knicks. And so, you know, there is something to be said about getting rid of that as well. So, you know... Is it really helpful? It's designed to give the league some time to calculate the salary cap, but it could probably be a lot shorter. The The other important thing to consider here is cap holds. We have those so that way teams can't time all the free agents to expire at the same time, then use what is called bird rights and similar exceptions to re-sign their players uh, with a zero cap or a very lowered cap. Uh, this is basically just an imaginary amount of money representing what they expect to re-sign their current players if they choose to. So that was designed to plug one of the, the many things that, that prevent teams from getting around the intentions of the collective bargaining agreement to try to kind of maintain an even playing field between the big draws, the big cities, and the smaller market teams. So these are all things that are, that are working together to minimize player movement. And these are things that are designed, again, to help teams retain their players so they can develop them and build a team. 
maybe that's not such an important thing anymore. We can debate it. Sign in trades like that we used to get Kemba on the roster in the first place and how he sent Terry in his place. There's another thing. They have things like base your compensation so you can't just sign a guy to whatever amount you, you think he can be used in a trade for beyond his worth. But it also limits teams in hard capping them. And so there's all these things that are happening that slow and minimize trades. And I am not sure that these rules make sense, at least in the form that they are currently structured. Uh, so I'm curious to pick your minds, uh, your mind, your mind about, first of all, let's just back up a little bit to free agency itself. When should it start? When should it stop? Should it be before, after the draft? Like when... When do you think we should be having free agency? Well, I, I think it makes more sense to to flip-flop it. It's, I mean, the same way the NFL does. Their free agency starts in March, and then their draft is at the end of April. Mm-hmm. I mean, because especially when they're talking about all this player movement and these guys getting traded to different teams, and, and wouldn't it be nice if the teams knew who they were trading for, right? Wouldn't that make more sense? Would You know, draft picks. I mean, a draft pick would still be pretty explosive, I'm sure, with, with trades and whatnot, but... I don't know, instead of throwing the dice and taking the sixth pick and hoping you're getting the guy that you want. And I mean, I don't know. I think I think it would make more sense to have players in place before. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's obviously a lot different than the NFL. We're not talking about, you know, a 58-man roster. We're talking about 15. It, it does seem kind of strange. Now that you bring it up, it never really occurred to me before. It's, I think, just an artifact of the way things were done. And there are some good arguments uh, in favor of them keeping things the way that they are. I actually subscribe to the idea that it should be flopped. I think it would make it easier for a lot of teams. I, I know Houston was a big driver of this argument. And I think the Celtics were one of the few teams, only think about maybe nine or 10 other teams in the league supported it. Uh, there wasn't a lot of opposition to it, if I if I remember correctly. I think most of the teams in the league were kind of just indifferent. They don't really care. I do think there is a possibility of changing when the draft is, but I don't necessarily expect it to happen anytime soon. But one of the things I think that we should pay attention to is tampering. Obviously, the Celtics, the New Orleans Pelicans, these are teams that had a lot of issues with tampering, but also did it. I mean, you know, Danny Ainge was complaining about tampering with Al Horford while being the beneficiary of somehow convincing Kemba Walker to show up and join the Boston Celtics just moments after the free agency period began. I don't know. What are your thoughts on tampering in general? Well, I mean, I, I think it's come to the point where we, we understand that these players are going to tamper behind their backs. I mean, but, you know, outside of the media, I, I think you're, you're onto something with the eliminating it from um, or making harsher penalties for, for public tampering. But um, I, I don't know how much that's going to change what goes on behind the scenes. I really don't know that there's any way to change that, right? These guys are friends play on different teams it's a different league than than 20 30 years ago where you know some of these guys legitimately hated each other uh everyone's pretty much friends there's some exceptions there but especially the stars right these guys play on all-star teams together they go to events together i don't know that there's any way to fix that um and they're always going to there is always going to be tampering at some level in that regard yeah, and that's exactly what I'm thinking, too. I mean, there are countless ways people can communicate without being discovered. And when there's a lot of money involved, then they'll get even better than they already are at it. So there's no point. 
I've heard ideas from John Corrales, for example, of a central communication forum, kind of like Slack or some other messaging community, where any deals that actually do take place need to be negotiated in a central location. And maybe only league officials can see all of the conversations. Maybe certain conversations stay in threads that are you know, managed by teams and overseen by the league, but invisible to non-participants. But I could see some value from something like that. But I mean, in terms of the public tampering, the league has it right. You know, at the recent Board of Governors meeting in Las Vegas after Summer League, they discussed what it would mean to actually deal with tampering. And I mean, it would require people surrendering cell phones, uh, servers that the data is stored on, basically very invasive approaches. And I don't think it's going to help anyone really very much because they'll still find ways to get around it. In my mind, the thing that needs to happen in that case is just to allow as much tampering as you want, uh, as long as it is behind the scenes, and that any official negotiations take place in some kind of centrally located, officially overseen context. And if anyone does make a mid-season trade request public, then they get fined a half a million dollars, and maybe are maybe they lose a quarter of the season uh, in, in the next season, or maybe the entire season. I don't know. Maybe they lose a season. Something with teeth that will stop these situations where fans have to watch their favorite players sitting on the sidelines for months. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with the Pelicans wanting to protect their investment, but the scenario that they were put in... Right, but they shouldn't have to be put in that situation, right. So it just needs to be be changed. And those are just some really basic ideas that we could deal with. Another thing that comes up a lot is the length of the season. You know, a lot of the players not playing involves fear of being hurt. Do we need the the season to be as long as it is? I mean, it was 60 and 70 games with less teams in the 1960s and early 1970s. Could we have, for example, maybe tournaments that maybe hopefully cause people like a play-in tournament for the for the last two seeds, the, the eighth seeds in either side of the playoffs in the East and the West? Maybe they could find ways to integrate uh, draft position boosters, ping pong ball boosters, or even like you get the number two or three or four slot for winning some kind of a midseason tournament. Just things to take away uh, games from veteran contention-ish teams. They tend to be older. In those situations, I could see uh, maybe them wanting less games because they're going to make them up in the playoffs, almost certainly. Maybe not always 82 games, but the regular season could still be the same, like say, I don't know, 60 or 62 games with these other tournaments filling in the gaps for younger teams, while the older teams that will go further, presumably in the playoffs, hopefully that will be made up uh, with deep deep runs into the playoffs. Do you, do you see any, whether it's just shortening it or finding other ways to make up for these kinds of situations? Do you think this is realistic or not? I, I don't think it's realistic to shorten the games. I mean, think about think about the same problems going on in baseball right now, right? There's too many games. They're too long, but there's money involved, and every game is money, and I, I can't see them taking any games away from the season. I mean, look at the NFL. They're trying to add games, and, and those guys, granted, they play a lot less games. Those guys take a beating, and they're trying to get them to play more games. So I can't see that happening. I just don't – I don't know how – I mean, they – I don't know how they go about that, honestly. I think you put your finger on the pulse. Uh, I mean, there is definitely quantifiable effects of having injured or sitting players. I think what we need to do is look at things like European soccer leagues uh, for examples of how some things like this can work. Because there are things like that that do exist in other sports. 
So we need to find out, uh, you know, through running simulations, through running studies, whether or not we can reasonably presume that these things can, one, build a fan engagement, but also, two, make money. Because as you said, it doesn't matter how much us, us nerds out here trying to think about how the NBA could be. Whatever we think about it, it's just not going to happen unless there is a net neutral financial impact. Besides that, another important thing uh, are things like the designated veteran player exception. As it's currently constructed, we see it's a disaster. Uh, the, you know, I mean, I, I understand you cannot make more than a max contract, but there are things that people can do, like tying it to the max with maybe a smaller boost that declines, maybe make it three years long and have it be 33%, 32%, and 31% of the cap instead of 35% of the cap for the people who can only make 30% of the cap. I don't know. Do you think that there there are things like that that need any kind of repairing uh, for the league to not hurt itself with trying to, again, retain players maybe longer than is actually good? Players move uh, more now because people are kind of freaking out about ending up with a John Wall, no offense to John Wall, on their, their, their cap for, you know, several years, maybe not even being a useful player. So... I mean, maybe things like auto declining from the percentage they can actually get. It'll still be a max contract, but moving it. So more money up front. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I think that that makes better sense in terms of perception, in terms of, you know, working under the cap, and especially with aging players, right? You signing a guy who's 32 at a max deal for four years. I mean, maybe when he's 36, he's not anywhere near the same level as the same player, right? But so teams that might be hesitant to throw that money at somebody – Maybe now they're, it gives them another option, right? I think it's a good way, you know, getting getting rid of these kinds of long contracts in general, whether it's the designated player type contracts or just the five-year deals. I don't know that they are good. I think we should have at the most four-year deals of any kind. Maybe that's the new designated veteran player exception. And then three-year deals for everybody else maximum. Uh and I would like to introduce even wackier ideas. Uh, this is one of the ones that I really want to pick your brain on. I got this idea out of combining two ideas, uh, one from outside the sport and the other from expansion. Now, when you have expansion in the league, in the NBA, teams can take players from other teams. Hold on to that idea. They can protect certain players. But in European soccer, when a team uh, does very badly... They can get kicked out of the league to a lower league. And this is called relegation. So there's an incentive to continually field really good teams. And this helps, you know, avoid their version of tanking. Nobody really wants to get kicked out of the big league. So they they do put, you know, they, they, they feel the best product that they can. If you combine the two where... Let's just say the two teams that are in the NBA Finals, we have some kind of a situation where two of the worst teams in the league, however we choose to define it, can steal one player from each of the two teams of their conference, right? And that will then, you know, maybe a team can protect its players with one protection plus any designated veteran or whatever rules you want to make in terms of protection. But you, you grant access to at least one of their starting players from one of the better teams as another means for team building that encourages player movement, encourages narratives, encourages drama in the way that we saw this summer. And maybe we we lean into player movement instead of fight it and see what it does. What do you think? I mean, it's a little out of the box. I mean, but there's certainly there, there's got to be something needs to be done, right? 
I think there's ways, and you know, I mean, our suggestions, our talking points, they're just talking points. They're just things to drive the conversation. But I do think the league should seriously explore ways to change these things in a way that drives uh, viewers to engage more and not just on the court. I mean, we see that the growth of the sport is predicated by fan engagement and fan engagement that doesn't necessarily have anywhere near as much to do with the on-court product as it used to, which, despite what some people think, I think is a good thing. I think we just need to find ways to clean up some of these issues, like the tampering issues, like the, as you said, injured players, uh, unable to play players, just guys having issues clogging up the cap, and then having fans turn on them for things that are entirely beyond their control. And even in, you know, in the case of Boston, fellow players, you know, knowing that things can move much more rapidly, I think it'll, it'll be a much better thing for the league for change to happen at a much faster pace than it has in the past. Guys, we've talked your ear off. We will not be throwing labs and podcasts more generally of this length at you regularly, but we really wanted to dive into this stuff for our first episode in the new format. Now, as before, and as always, you can find the pod on Wooshka, iTunes, Google Play, and really anywhere that you can find podcasts. Please, if you aren't already subscribed, do so. Let us know your thoughts on any tweet with the hashtag CLPOD. You know, we're bringing you the dankest data and deep dives in Celtics media with a lot of alliteration for good measure. Please tell your friends if they don't know, spread the word. That's what will drive our ability to bring in the best possible guests and the deepest possible dives. So for that, I'd like to let you go from myself and Mark Allison. We'd like to thank you for joining us in the Celtics Lab. Later, guys. 